Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church Lagos. We hope this sermon answers the doubts or questions that you have about the gospel, its relevance to your life, and the ever-evolving culture around us. Our vision is to see the city of Lagos and beyond renewed by the gospel, and to make that happen, we need your support. You can do this by rating this podcast, following us, and giving through the Give tab on our website, citychurchlagos.com. Thank you for your generosity. We pray this sermon impacts you positively with the gospel. Today, our Bible reading will be taken from the book of Mark, chapter 1, verses 9 to 15. At the end of the reading, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and will respond with, thanks be to God. Mark chapter 1, verses 9 to 15. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. At once the spirit sent him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Um, in case you're watching with us for the first time, my name is Tommy Olariwaju. Um, one of the guys on the preaching team. I know some of you are waiting for further introduction. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so it's so good, it's so good to have you here, and I'm glad to be the one bringing the word of God to you this morning. Um, let us pray together. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you. It's not because we are smarter that we are here today. It's not because we know that those that, it's not because we understand better than others that those that don't call upon your name shall be destroyed. That's why we're here. No, we are here because your grace called us. We long for your word. But your word still says it's you that worketh in us both to will and to do. And so, Lord, we are grateful for the hunger for your word. Lord Jesus, we are grateful that you will not give a hunger that you are not willing to satisfy. And so, Lord Jesus, today, as your word goes forth, every hunger for your word, every hunger for you that we think is hunger for fame, power, and all other things, every hunger for you, Lord Jesus, we ask that you satisfy. Holy Spirit of the Most High God, Please, please, please. I cannot show your people Christ. Only you can. So Holy Spirit, upon every hearer of the word, 
open the ears, open the hearts to see you as the most beautiful, the most glorious, the most powerful. In Jesus' mighty name we've prayed. Amen. Amen. All right. Um, once again, uh, good morning. All right. Um, so, heads up on two things. Heads up on two things in this sermon. Two things. Um, don't, don't project the sermon title yet. I just want to say, uh, disclaimer, the sermon title is a little bit weird. All right. It's a little bit corny. I'm just prepping your mind for it. So, when you see it, you'll be like, does that guy know that thing is weird? I know. All right. I'm honing it. I know. Um, the second thing is this. Um, Today is going to be a little bit theological. We're going to do some theology, some moving from scripture to scripture. Because I know that when you're leaving your house this morning, you're like, I'm going to church to learn theology. And we're like, yes, we got you. All right, we got you. Here, part of our emphasis is what? Learning. We'll teach you. <laughs> so, yeah, so those are heads up on those two things. So, yeah. Well, the title of my sermon is, um, yeah, The Trailblazer. The Trailblazer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, I know, I know, I know. See, when I told my wife that this title of my sermon, she said, ah, Tommy, this title sounds like all these 1990s, early 2000 adventure movies, like Pathfinder, you know, Outlander, Trailblazer. There's one on Netflix now, Snowpiercer, you know, all those kind of things. And, and, and yeah, and if you're, in case you're wondering why we, uh, why I settled for this, two reasons still. I honestly could not come up with a better, better title. I just, I mean, I, I employed all the media team in all their glory. They just couldn't deliver this time. <laughs> secondly, secondly, which is the more important reason, I am actually convinced this is what God wants you to hear today. That God wants you to see him as your trailblazer. So, um, just thinking about the word trailblazer, the, trail, the word trailblazer really comes from, it could also mean in German, it means white markings. So the idea is... Um, there is no way in a particular place, maybe in a jungle or in the woods, and somebody's going to come, and as he's clearing the path and creating the way, he will make white markings on the tree because he's expecting other people to come and follow him. You see, we're in this series that we've titled um, Introducing the Son of God. And so in this series, you would be um, seeing, hopefully, different perspectives, certain things you've known before, certain things you didn't know before that will help to shape and that will help to impress the image of God more clearly upon your heart. So it's only in this series that we then title this sermon, um, The Trailblazer. You see, the word trailblazer carries within it. It's doing two things. It's describing a person and it's describing what the person does. So for example, like an oath breaker. An oath breaker is somebody that what? Breaks oaths. But that is also the person is, right? So the trailblazer, like I said, it carries within, it carries within it the idea, the description of what a person does and who a person is. So last week, you learned about the forerunner that had gone to prepare the way for the Lord. This week, I'm going to learn about Christ Jesus, the trailblazer who has come to make the way by being the way. In John chapter 14, Jesus said, I am the what? The way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except by me. And therein lies the good news, folks. This is the gospel. This is the good news right there. Why? Because the trailblazer is making marks because he's expecting other people to follow him. So you can imagine that the trailblazer is going to see some bushes and he's clearing it. He's walking on the path. He's walking on it and clearing all these things so that other people can come and walk on the path that he has walked on. 
So you begin to understand that this is the gospel, that whatever walking you are going to do is based on the workings of Christ Jesus for you upon the cross of Calvary. So Jesus has done the work of salvation. He has done the work of healing. He has done the work of deliverance. He has done the work of breakthrough so that you can come and walk upon the path that he has walked on. So he walked on the path so you can walk on the path. So he walked. The Bible, Bible, said, Bible says something. He said, I must do the work of him. Jesus said that. That sent me while it is day. For the night cometh when no man can walk. So he's doing the work so that you can do Galatians chapter 5 when he said walk in the spirit. Right? And you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. Jesus finished the work on the cross. Died, resurrected, and ascended. And he sat down knowing that he has completed his work. There is nothing else to be done. You're walking in faith. You're walking to the new heavens and the new earth. You're walking on the journey of life. is really based on the workings of Christ Jesus. In Ephesians chapter 2, we've learned that we are saved by grace, right? And in Romans, we also learned that we are saved by grace. Not by our own works. Yes, but we are saved by grace because it's based on the workings of somebody else. Can you say it after me? He walked on the path. So I can walk on the path. He walked on it. He walked on it, yes. He worked on it. So the question then becomes, what kind of path did Christ create? What kind of trail did he blaze? Because your, your, your conviction about the kind of trail that Christ actually blazed will determine the things you tolerate on the journey or the things you anticipate in faith. Can I say that again? Your conviction about the kind of trail that Christ has actually come to make, the kind of trail that he has come to blaze, will determine the things you tolerate, whether you should tolerate everything, or you should just anticipate and constantly, or constantly live in faith. So you find two people, two sets of, two sets of, two groups have different ideas about the kind of trail that Christ has blazed for us. So some, you hear some people, the, the trail that Christ has blazed for us is a trail of victory. You know, because as Christ is, so are we in this world. So what can happen to Christ cannot happen to me. Christ cannot be sick, I cannot be sick. Christ cannot die, I cannot die. Christ cannot sleep, what? You know, and the logic goes on and on. <laughs> right, it goes on and on. So because the conviction of the trail, they really feel that, oh, this trail is about a trail, it's a trail of victory. It's a trail of dominion. It's a trail of power. Then there are those on the other side that say, no, it is a trail of suffering. You know, the, the sufferings of this present time are nothing that should be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. If we suffer with him, right, we shall also reign with him. So don't say pretend to tolerate a lot of things. And the other group, we just, no, 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 no. We just believe. We just believe. We just believe. It is important to understand the kind of trail that God has placed before you. But beyond that, it is also, to, it's also important to understand the person of the trailblazer himself. Because this is it. If somebody cleared a path about three years ago and I come and I'm standing on the path, I'll walk on that path with less confidence. Why? Uh, he did it three years ago. Anything might have happened. It is different from if he cleared the path and every step he takes, I take it along with him because I'm close to him. Every step he takes, I take it along with him. My confidence is increased at that point. Why? Because I can see the trailblazer before me. So your, your confidence upon the trail is directly proportional to your closeness to the trailblazer. If you want to, if you want to um, be more confident upon the trail, if you want to be more, um, to live in more faith, to live in more security, to live in less anxiety, to live in less fear, you need to be close to the trailblazer. And at this point, I'm harking back to what Pastor Femi said about two weeks ago. When he said, what is anxiety? 
imagining your future without Christ in it. So on the trail, you cannot see Christ anymore. Then you begin to live in anxiety. It's also the same thing with fear. Why are you scared? Why are you fearful? It's because you are assessing the situations around you, but you can't assess that Christ is right there in the situation with you. And that's why the psalmist said in Psalm chapter 23, he said, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, what will happen? I will fear no evil. Why? Because the Lord is with me. He has assessed the situation. There is the value of the shadow of death. People die here, yes, but I will not fear. Why? Because I am close to the trailblazer. So again, your confidence upon the trail is directly proportional to your closeness to the trailblazer. Is the trailblazer before you? That's the question. You are fearful. You are anxious. Can you see the trailblazer? Do you understand the kind of trail that he has blazed for you? And that's the reason why Mark writes to the guys at the time. To, they, were, they were Romans, right? They were Gentile Christians, and they were living in Rome. They were being persecuted. In fact, if you think that, um, depending on what you think, right? But most of us think that, oh, the government of Nigeria is really, really bad. Those guys had it worse, right? The Roman government was probably, probably the most evil, the most corrupt. Like, think about it. Just what, if you think about anything bad, they are worse than that. All right. And yet these people lived at a time. So Mark is writing to them. And so if it is important for them to understand the trailblazer, it's important for us to understand it as well. So Mark writes in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. It says, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Because many times, what tends to cloud our vision of the trailblazer is probably storms of life, isn't it? Um, marriage not going the way you want it to go. Your children not behaving the way you want them to behave. The, the um, Naira is dropping. All those other things just tend to cloud your vision. So Mark is trying to, let me introduce this Jesus to you. Let me show you the kind of person you have put your faith in. And so he writes, like I said, Mark chapter 1, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. I said this is going to be a little bit theological, all right? So there's some guardrails to help us. Number one, this Bible that you see, it has limited pages, isn't it? Obviously, right? But the Bible says in John chapter 21, verse 25, John 21, 25, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that will be written. So what you have here, think about, is not everything Jesus said and did. It means that God, in his own divine sovereignty, has divinely selected the, the, the parts of the scripture, has divinely selected things that, God has, that Jesus has said, things that Jesus has done to enable you to understand God a little bit better. And so that's why the Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, that how you've known the scripture that is able to make thee wise unto salvation. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16, then it says the scripture is what? Profitable for rebuke, correction, instruction unto righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, lacking nothing. So God has divinely picked the things that are in scripture. So whatever you find there, it is intentional. God put it there intentionally for you. There is no mistake. The words there are pregnant with meaning. Second guardrail. To understand the old, to understand the New Testament, you need to understand the Old Testament. So you've heard some people say, oh no, we're no longer under the law, we're under grace. We're no longer under the Old Testament, we're under the New Testament. So just focus on reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, then the letters of Paul. No. 
if you want to understand what he said there, you need to understand the Old Testament. Because the story didn't start in Matthew. It started where? In Genesis. The Old Testament is the background story of the New Testament. In fact, many times, the New Testament is going to be like black and white pictures until you understand the Old Testament. That's what brings colors to it. Or maybe an example to make you appreciate a little bit better. Um, we were in a gathering one time, and they were, were told to say interesting things about ourselves. And somebody brought out a pencil. Brought a pencil. Uh, HP pencil. Not the original one. You know the original HP pencil? Remember? Yellow, black, red. You know that one? The fake one. Yellow. Yeah. So he brought it out. And he said, I carry this pencil with me everywhere I go. Okay, good for you, right? Sorry, sorry, good for you. I said, why? He said, my mom gave me this pencil just before she died. That immediately adds meaning to the pencil. In fact, if the pencil falls, you say, ah, oh God, ah, pen, ah, ah. Why? There is a backstory that you now understand that has brought colors to that thing that you didn't seem to understand initially. So if you want to understand the New Testament, you need to understand the Old Testament. If you want to understand the story of Christ, we need to understand the background story, which is the Old Testament. The Old Testament is simply a background story to the story of Christ Jesus. That's why Jesus said in John chapter 5, John chapter 5, he said, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have life. But these are the scriptures that do what? That testify about me. The Old Testament is talking about me. And that scripture in Luke chapter 24 Verse 25 to 27, so some, after Jesus has resurrected, some guys were walking on the road, and then Jesus is walking with them, and then he decided to talk to them. And the Bible said, he said to them, so they didn't, never mind the background story, but let's just continue. He said to them, how foolish you are, how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things, and then enter his glory? 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them, what was said in all the scriptures? Where? Concerning himself. That is, when you are reading Genesis, what should, what should you be saying? Christ. When you are reading Leviticus, what should you be saying? Christ. When you are reading Isaiah, what should you be saying? Christ. All of scripture is pointing to Christ Jesus. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 17, Paul then emphasizes and says, These, referring to the Old Testament, are shadows of things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ Jesus. So when you are reading in Exodus and you learn that the lamb was slain so that when they carry the blood, they can put it on the lintel of their house so that the destruction, the destructor will part, the destructor, oh my God. Destroyer, man. The devil is a liar. The destroyer was trying to destroy this away. <laughs> so that the destroyer, right, would pass over them. That in and of itself is not pointing to the lamb in the Old Testament. It's pointing to a lamb that is to come. That's why John then said, Behold the lamb that taken away the sins of the old world. In Revelation, John the Apostle then writes, in a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the lamb who was slain. The lamb you see in Exodus is not talking about that lamb. It's talking about the lamb that is to come. But in the very same way, another example that is going to help you, the rock in Numbers chapter 20. So the children of Israel had, had complained against God that there was no water, there was no bread. God was angry with them. So God tells them, He said, Come before me. And at this point, if God, you know, you know how when you're arguing with your mom and you're arguing, you're arguing, arguing, and she says, Wah. You know, the most stupid thing you can do is to come, right? 
because then you are within the range of air. He said, come before me. So what they were probably expecting was that God was going to strike them. But God says to Moses in Numbers chapter 20, verse 11, strike the rock. Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out. So instead of, the, instead of people to be struck, God strikes the rock and life comes out of the rock and feeds the people. The story is about Christ Jesus. Because Paul then says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, and they drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And that rock was who? Christ Jesus. The Old Testament is a background story to the New Testament. So, understanding that. So, when Mark then writes that the beginning of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. When you see that, like I said, everything there is intentional. When you see that word, Son of God, immediately you pause. I'd be like, okay, what has the Old Testament got to say about this? Like, that, that's, the only, that's the only logical explanation. Because when you read it, you say, oh, the Son of God, it must be, um, you know, God is eternal, so the eternal Son of God. But no, that's not really the way the Bible uses it. The way the Bible actually, the Bible actually uses it to describe a human being that has been touched by divine. Not necessarily the divine person. Now, I'm not saying that the Son of God is not the divine person. But for us to understand this, you cannot jump onto the story in Mark because there's a whole conversation that has started before. In fact, the Son of God is not necessarily exclusive to Christianity, even at the time. Caesar Augustus at the time called himself the Son of God. So he's not exclusive to the New Testament as well. He's even not exclusive to the Old Testament because at the time there were origin stories that were not necessarily from the Bible. You know, like Egyptians had the origin story, Babylonians had the origin story, so Yoruba people have the origin story. Funny enough, I don't know any Igbo origin story. But you get my point, right? Yoruba people have the origin story. And you know, we say, we say something like, um, Oduduwa, right, came from the sky with chain. Beautiful story, really, if you think about it. And then he had chicken. Where did chicken come from? We don't know. He had sand. This origin story, origin of all things. But the sand was already appearing. And then he pours the sand on the floor, and the chicken comes, you know, and does that. That's our origin story. In the very same way, people at the time add their own origin stories as well. And in those origin stories, the kings of those people are usually called the sons of God. So for Egyptians, Pharaoh will be the son of God, the son of Ra, the son God. Right? In fact, some even go further to say that the kings were the images of God. They were representatives of God. The Bible then comes in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, and then says, let us make man in our own image, in our own likeness, so they may rule over the fish of the sea, over livestock, and all creatures that move all around. I am proposing to you that when God was saying to Adam that let us make man, was saying, let us make man in our own image, and God created Adam in his own image, God was actually naming Adam the son of God. Maybe this is going to help, because the, the, the language of image, being made in the image of somebody, is actually the language of sonship. In Genesis chapter 5, when Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own what? Image. The language of sonship is the, la the language of image is the language of sonship. Maybe you should see it in Luke chapter 3, verse 37 to 38. The son of, so they were talking about genealogies of Jesus, all right? So they trace the genealogy all the way from Jesus down to Adam. So they are writing. Um, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalel, the son of Canaan, son of Enosh, son of Seth, 
The son of Adam, what? The son of God. So Adam was actually the son of God. He was a son of God. And there are certain things you begin to notice when God actually calls somebody his son. Three things happen. You find the divine word. You find the divine breath. And you find the divine testing. Can I say that again? You find the divine word that is endorsing the son. Right? You find the divine breath. And you find the divine testing. So God says to Adam in Genesis chapter 1 verse 28. He says, um, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and what? Subdue it. Jewish commentators actually believe that the word for subdue there means lead creation to his desired destination. So Adam, as the son of God, part of his own task was to actually lead creation to his desired destination. And if you really think about it, I know that what God created was good, but there was something else it was supposed to be. So, for, so God created in Genesis chapter 1, the earth was empty and void. Emptiness, void. What God actually tells Adam was, fill the earth. That is what? The earth originally supposed to be filled. By the time when it was created, it wasn't. But it was still good. So there was something else it was supposed to be. So Adam was supposed to lead creation, like I said, to his desired destination. In a sense, was supposed to lead creation on a path that it has never traveled before. So in a sense, Adam was the son of God, but was also a trailblazer. The problem was then that Adam failed in his own test and therefore blazed the trail unto death. That is why in Adam we have all sin because we are following the path that he has actually walked on. And so, yes, you didn't really sin. You didn't, I mean, you didn't start the initial sin, but Adam walked on it so you can walk on it. So he blazed the trail, not just for all of us, but for creation itself. And that's why the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verse 22, we know that the whole world has been what? Groaning. They don't want to follow that particular trail. Why? Because the destiny of the Son of God, the destiny of the trailblazer becomes the destiny of creation itself. And so they, they're not pleased with what is going on. They're not pleased at all. So again, we have the word of God that comes when the Son of God is being it's been proclaimed. Then we have God's breath, the breath of God. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Can you project that? Genesis 2, 7. So the Lord God formed man, and from the dust of the ground, breath into his nostrils, the breath of life. And man became a living being. The book of Job comments on what is happening here because, just, oh, breath, what's happening there? All right. Job 27, 3 says, As long as I have life within me, the what? Breath of God. The Hebrew word for breath is ruach. Ruach didn't appear there the first time. Ruach appeared in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. And the spirit, another version of say, and the breath, the Hebrew word is, and the ruach of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So when the, son of, when the son of God was proclaimed, there was the word, but there was the spirit of God that also came when the word was proclaimed. Is that sounding familiar with anybody? Yeah. 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 Anyways. So the story continues. So in Genesis 1, you find the word of God. In Genesis 2, you find the spirit of God. In Genesis 3, you find the testing. Because then the devil comes to meet Adam, test Adam, and Adam falls. Like I said, he blazed the trail to death. And so the Bible then is on a search for the true son of God. The Bible then is on a search for the true trailblazer. 
that will trail, the, that will blaze the trail all the way to life. This is the point of genealogies. They are searching for the son of God. That's why you say, oh, this person gave back to the son of, the son of, because they are searching for a son. The son of God that will come to blaze the trail to life. And then we get to Noah. Now, just heads up, all right? The Old Testament doesn't always, the way they write, they don't always tell you stuff. They show you. So, for example, there is really no way in the Old Testament where the Bible says, don't marry more than one wife. I mean, polygamy, is, they didn't say so. But it shows you. Why? When you see David, you see Abraham, your common sense should tell you, this is not the way. So they don't tell you. They do what? They show you with patterns that will remember this thing. This is not what it's supposed to go. This is what this thing is actually pointing to. So they, don't, they wouldn't necessarily call anybody, oh, this is the Son of God, until we get to Christ. No, they didn't call anybody that. But there were patterns that you can see. So for Noah, you see in Genesis chapter 5, Bible said, he named him Noah, that's Noah's father, named him Noah, and said, he will comfort us in labor and painful toil of our hands, caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. Another version will say, maybe he will bring us relief from the ground the Lord has cursed. So there was an expectation on Noah's life. That maybe this person will be the son of God that will blaze a different trail. Let me prove it to you. In Genesis chapter 9, Genesis chapter 9 now, verse 1 to 2. Then God blessed Noah and his son, saying to him, be fruitful and increase and what? Fill the earth. What do you see there? The initial word that God was saying to Adam in the beginning, saying, okay, this is the word coming to this person. The divine mandate is coming to Noah. And the, the end of the verse says, um, have dominion on every creature that moves along the ground and, on the, and all the fish in the sea. They are given where? Into your hands. Meaning what? Rule them. But we also understand, according to scripture, that the way Noah ended his life, at the end of his life, the Bible says Noah became a man of the soil and then he drank wine and he got drunk and he was naked. As at the time you are reading Genesis chapter 5, where else do you see nakedness? Genesis chapter 3. He's trying to show you that in the very same way that Adam has failed, Noah also has failed. And so the search still continues. The search moves on and we get to Israel and in Genesis chapter 35 from verse 9 to 11. It is really after Jacob returned from Padam Aram, God appeared to him again and blessed him. God said to him, your name is Jacob, but you will no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be Israel. So he named him Israel. You know what Israel means? It means son. It means almost as if he's just staring at you right in the face. It means son. And God said to him, I am God the Almighty. Be what? Fruitful and what? Increase. Again. So this is another expectation. We should have expectation for this particular person. But we know how the story of Jacob ends, right? Eventually, in this one, come and um, blaze the trail for him so I will not die. They led him to Egypt, right? So he eventually didn't live a good life. He also fell short of the expectation. And then we get to Israel in Exodus chapter 1 from verse 1, up to chapter 1, verse 7. Right? So now God is actually calling the nation Israel. His own son, I'm going to show you in verse 7. It says, but Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. This is the point where the Bible actually then calls them the son. In Exodus chapter 4, then, then says to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is what? My firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go. So I will what? Kill your own firstborn son. 
spoken like a true father that lost his son. So what does that mean? At that point, you are seeing what? The beloved son. It's like, dude, he's, he's showing the image of a son that is actually loved. So Israel was a son that was loved. In Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, when Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt, I did what? Called my son. So Israel itself, as a nation, was the son of God. But then you then find a very, very beautiful picture in the book of Exodus. We get to Exodus chapter 14, and the children of Israel are the Red Sea, right? And the Bible says in Exodus chapter 14, they pass through the Red Sea. The Bible says in 14, chapter 14, verse 21, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night, the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry ground. The waters were divided. Note the word, a strong east wind. It was actually a wind. Coming from where? The east. Where did the east appear? In Genesis 1, in Genesis 2, he planted a garden east of Eden. In Ezekiel, where is the glory of the Lord coming from? Coming from the east. So at this point, the wind is coming from who? It's coming from God himself. And almost as if Moses and Mary wants to actually explain it to you. In chapter 15, verse 8, they then said, By the blast, the Hebrew word there is Ruach, of your nostrils, the waters piled up, the salty waters stood up. Like a wall, the deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. But you blew with your what? With your breath. And the sea covered them. So here you see the Son of God going under the waters. The Spirit of God is present and the word had been declared before. That immediately points you to the Son of God in Mark chapter 1. Who goes under the waters, receives the word of God. And the Spirit of God rests upon him. Saying, saying something. And Jesus then says this in Matthew chapter 3 verse 15. He says, talking about when he was about to be baptized, John the Baptist didn't want to baptize him initially. So he says, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to what? Fulfill all righteousness. Not to do all righteousness. You know, the way, I've always read it that way. I'll be like, oh no, he just had to do all the right things he was supposed to do. No. The word he used was fulfill. When you hear fulfill, what comes to your mind? That the prophecy that had come before. That the prophetic expectation. Christ was saying, I have become the prophetic expectation of Israel, the son of God. What they failed to become, I have come to be. And so Jesus was presenting himself as that. Isn't that the same thing that happens to me and you? We receive the word of God as salvation. The spirit of God comes upon us. And then there will be a period of testing. There will be a period of wilderness in the very same Galatians chapter 4, verse 6 to 7. Because you, talking about me and you, are his sons. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer, so you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are a child, God has also made you an heir. The destiny of Christ, your trailblazer, has now become your own destiny because you have followed the pattern in which he followed. The trail that he blazed is a trail that involves the spirit of God coming upon the sons of God after they have received the word of God. So what happens after the children of Israel got out of the Red Sea? They went into the wilderness. In the very same way, Mark chapter 1, you see, after the Spirit of God comes upon Jesus, where does he lead him to? Into the wilderness. It is the very same thing with me and you. After we receive the Spirit of God, the trail leads into the wilderness. And one thing happens when we get to the wilderness. They receive attacks from Satan. Israel was attacked. Jesus was attacked. We will be attacked. 
And so the Bible reads in Exodus chapter 1. I just want to show you something because I believe that this is going to help somebody. In Exodus chapter 1, verse 8. I'm just going to pick some things verse 8 to 13. Just trying to unveil certain things that, that is real for our journey. Now, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, so pay attention here. Look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Therefore, they set testmasters over them to afflict them, with, to afflict them with their burdens. Pause. This makes absolutely no sense. Let me read again. The children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them. It's like this. So, we are 30. You are 50. So, let us come and enslave you. It makes no sense. Let's read on. I'm going somewhere. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were in dread of the children of Israel. And you see it again. So, the Jesus children of Israel served with rigor. Still does it. So, like, oh, we are scared of you. So, let's enslave you. We are scared of you. So let's enslave you. How do you convince a whole nation that they are not what they really are? I need to meet the PRO of Egypt at the time. No, because, I mean, how do you do it? Like, you are 30, they are 50, and you are still able to convince them that they are actually not what they really are. Does this sound familiar to you? This way the devil attacks people. In Genesis chapter 3, he came to meet Eve. He said, did God say, if you eat this fruit, you shall be like God? Problem, Genesis 1. They were already like God. He was convincing Eve. You are not who you, you, you think you really are. It is the same tactic. It is the same strategy. It has not changed since time began. He came to meet Jesus as well. In Matthew chapter 4, he said, if you are the son of God, like, I mean, he knows that already. No, no, no. Are you sure? So to make you say, no, you are not what you really think you are. It is the same strategy ever since. To so note this, he attacks you because he knows you are mightier than he is. Two, he attacks you because he's scared of you. Think about that again. There is something about you that the devil thinks is worth destroying. And he's scared of it. That is why he's attacking you. If the devil doesn't attack you, there is nothing worth destroying you. Don't be scared of him. Why? The truth is that he is actually scared of you. That's why he's coming for you. That is why he's coming for the church. That's why he's coming for us. Greater is he that lives in us than he that lives in the world. The only strategy he has is to convince you that somewhere in your mind, you are not what you really, you, you are not what you really are. It is the same thing he did for Israel in the wilderness. They go to the promised land. They sent spies into the land. And you came and said, ah, we are like grasshoppers. What does that even mean? How in the world are you like grasshoppers? Again, you see the works of the devil there, convincing them that they were not what they really were. That they should retreat. And the word then says something. They said, let us pick a leader. Let us go back to Egypt. So this is the picture here. That they were, they were sons of God and they were at the verge of the promised land. And the devil was convincing them that slavery was better than sonship. At that very same instance. It makes absolutely no sense. Except, yes, the Satan is behind it. The devil is behind it. 
Why do we drag our feet when we are called to preach the gospel? Oh, you are not what you really think you are. It's a lie. He knows that the message that you have will change the world and snatch people from his own hands. So the only thing he can do is to convince you that you are defined by your sin, no longer by your sonship. And so what's the option? Retreat in fear. So the Israelites were already out of Egypt, but Egypt was not out of them yet. It's terrible. Egypt constantly will call on to us that it is better to be a slave than to be a son. But the spirit that we have received, glory to God, the spirit that we have received is a spirit that constantly reminds us, bearing witness with us, that we are what? Sons of God. Sons of God. The trail goes through the wilderness. The devil will tempt you. He will try you. It's the trail. That's what Jesus, that's the trail he blazed. And many times, he will try you after a spiritual high. You see, because after, after God split the Red Sea for them and they were proven to be sons of God, what happens? They were in the wilderness and the devil came after a spiritual high. Imagine Jesus as well, you know, getting baptized and he's just coming out of the water and like, I mean, the, for God's sake, the sky is split in two. It doesn't get better than that. To the spiritual high. And yet, the devil came. I was talking to some of my brothers recently. All of them said, I know why the devil always attacks me. Either I'm on a spiritual high or I'm low. One thing is sure, you will attack. Notice it. Many times, after an encounter with God, max two days, he will pay you a visit. I remember one time I was praying with some of my friends. And you know the kind of prayer that you pray, you know that you touch something. You know, like, I will say to you, Ruba, you know what I mean? We caught fire. Those kind, of, those kind of prayers that you pray, that you will know that you are in direct confrontation with the kingdom of darkness. Like, you know, those kind of gym, gym, no, not, Father Lord, we just watch. No! No, you wish. Yeah, so we did that. You know, we left that place of prayer. And before we left, God's word came to us. He said, be watchful, the devil will come for all of you. We're like, ah, <laughs> not in day. We day, not in Monday morning, I went to meet my friend. I said, Oga, I don't understand though. Since Friday, and I'm not joking, like this, since Friday, I have not been, anytime I, I've not been able to say a single word of prayer. Like I, I was in a night vigil, I was just staring. I couldn't say a thing. Listen, he said, oh, that same thing happened to me. Or like, we asked another person, said, oh no, that same thing happened to me. I reveal something to you. If you encounter God on Sunday, latest by Tuesday, he will pay you a visit. <laughs> so don't be shocked. You see, what the devil wants to convince you is, ah, ah, say you encounter God on Sunday. So God didn't take that thing out. It's a lie. He has to come knocking. Why? Because you have encountered something. It is the way you oppress. It will always come after a spiritual high. Last week was powerful. How many of you were around? And some of you already know, he paid you a visit this week. Things that you didn't know were proper, that you, you ah, no, I, I've dealt with this thing. Ah. 
up again. Don't be discouraged. That's the way he does. And he does it because he's scared of what you have received. He does it because he knows you are mightier than he is. The trail that Christ has blazed for us is a trail that comes with temptations and trials. Expect them. They will come. It is part of the trail. It, is, it has always been. Oh, I'm so discouraged. Nigeria is our life is at. It's the way it has always been. It will come. Your child will mess up. He will come. You will be depressed for no reason. He will come. That's what he does. It's always the trend. But the good news is this. That no matter how long it takes, the wilderness will be over. See, you can be saying, oh, Tommy, life is hard. I'm just sick. I've been trying for different jobs. My faith is shaking. But remember that the destiny of the trailblazer has already become your destiny. If the wilderness ended and Jesus was standing, your wilderness will end and you will be standing. He's got nothing on you. He's got nothing on me. The wilderness will be over. It is a trail that comes with suffering. But also, you read in the text, it was with wild animals. It was the wild animals in Mark chapter 1. Wild animals. Again, Mark didn't have to write this, did he? What are you thinking? It was the wild animals. So what? You see... The only person you can think about that was in any place with animals are two people. Who? Adam and Noah. What was Mark trying to show you? That these same wild animals that ought to have actually been um, ripping Jesus apart. Just, that was just silent. It was just the wild animals. Nothing happened. Why? He was exerting rule and dominion over them. Right there in the wilderness. Yes, suffering is going to come. Yes, pain is going to come. Yes, you will be tempted. But right there in the wilderness, there is still the dominion of the king that actually resides with you. That trail is not just a trail of suffering. It is a trail of power and authority. Right there, yes. Oh, there's still sickness in my body. There's still pain in my body. That's the reason why sometimes you will come to church. You say, oh, this person is healed. But that person is not healed. Right there, it might be tempting us to give up because God didn't heal this person. But listen, on the other side, just your neighbor is healing that person. Right there, there is authority. Right there, in the wilderness. Don't let the devil begin to tempt you and begin to feel like, oh, I'm just going to lose this, this battle over my sin. There is dominion over that sin right there in the wilderness. There is dominion over the forces of darkness right there in the wilderness. There is dominion by the gospel right there in the wilderness. Also, you've been praying for this person. They've not been saved for a very long time. There is dominion right there in the wilderness. God has not left us alone. You are not alone. The word called the text there reads, and angels did what? Came to minister to him. You are not alone. The first thing the devil does when he's trying to tempt you is to make you feel as if you're the only one suffering that thing. That's why the Bible then says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it said, God will not let you be tempted 
beyond what you can bear. He will create a way of escape. Matthew chapter 5. He said, you rejoice. You are blessed when people persecute you. Why? So is all men around the world. Children of God are being persecuted too. You are not alone. I'm not trying to say that your suffering is not huge. But it's not special. God will give you the victory. But Jesus left the wilderness and he said the time has been fulfilled. He used that word again. <laughs> he used the word fulfilled. He said the time has been fulfilled. That the prophetic expectation of the Old Testament, your search for the Son has come and now he has dominion by preaching the gospel. And so many of you might be here you know, after your spirituality, the devil has got you. You know what I mean? Maybe has even got you for years. You know. You're a son of God, but you feel like Adam, the son of God, has been cast out of the garden. When God cast Adam out of the garden, there was... The Bible said he put a, a cherub with a flaming sword. And so because he fell, listen... Because he gave in to sin, because he gave in to the lie and probably gave in to the depression, gave in to all of those things, it felt as if the presence of God was beyond his own reach. And maybe you are here, this has been your testimony for years. It's just like, I've tried really, I have. It just doesn't seem real. It's like, it's like there is something blocking me. I just can't, I just can't penetrate through. You see, the trailblazer has got you. He has. Because the trailblazer doesn't just have kingly duties. He has priestly duties. And you see that with Adam. Adam, yes, was the son of God. But he was a king that was a priest. Now, I've shown you the king part where he ruled in dominion and power. Yes, that's true. But where was he ruling? In Eden. What was happening in Eden? The meeting place between God and man. That was sacred space. And the same Hebrew word that was used to command Adam that, oh, take care of the garden, was the same Hebrew word that God used for the priest. And he said, take care of the tabernacle. Adam was some kind of a priest, but he was also a king, but he failed. And so God cast him out of the presence. And yes, he will probably be seeing that, fl that flaming sword. And he actually cannot penetrate through because he has actually failed. And so God calls a nation, Israel, Israel is my firstborn son, and he testifies concerning them in Exodus chapter 19. He says, oh, He said, You shall be a nation of what? Kings and what? Priests. So Israel was supposed to serve as the mediator to usher. Remember, I said they were like trailblazers to blaze the trail into the presence of God that Adam had been cast out of. And so the tabernacle was built. I don't know if I can allow you here. Elijah and Kulika, can you please come up? So the tabernacle was built, and then a high priest was supposed to come. So there was the tabernacle, and then there are, there are the rest parts of the tabernacle. There is the holies of holies, there is the holy place, there is the outer court. And the idea was this that because the Son of God has failed as a nation, they cannot just enter in. And maybe you can identify with that. You probably failed in one thing or another. Or oh, I gave into that addiction again this week. 
oh, I got angry again this week. Oh God, I'm already caught keeping malice again this week. Oh God, I'm already caught having those ungodly thoughts again this week. And now you're feeling like, oh, I cannot penetrate. Israel felt the same way. They were sons of God that could not go beyond the veil. And so God gave them a high priest that will go on their behalf. So you could almost imagine, can you just stand this way? You could almost imagine, so imagine with me, all right? There is the veil here that is covering the holies of holies. And none of them could enter. So God picks the high priest. And he will come with burning incense and blood. So his hands are full. Like he's carrying the burning incense and he's carrying the blood of the lamb, really. And there's the veil, right? And the only way he can enter probably is to just sneak in, really. Because there was no door. So he would sneak in and close the curtain behind him. No other person could follow him into that place. And so Israelites were going to constantly be looking at the veil. Constantly longing for the presence of God but never being able to touch it. Like, they were, like oh, why? maybe some of them were probably thinking, how I wish I could be the high priest and see what is beyond the veil. The high priest, even at the time, though he was like the son of God, could not blaze the trail. Why? Because a trailblazer is supposed to make white markings so that other people can follow him. No one else could go in. But this is what it means that he's the mediator of a better covenant. Because in Mark chapter 15, the Bible says when Jesus drew his last breath, the veil was torn in two from top to bottom. He tore it down, stepped into the place with the blood of the Lamb, and then carried this two and said, come along with me. Into the very presence of God. Listen carefully. Listen carefully. It doesn't matter what you do. It seems like, oh, the presence of God. It's just as I can't touch it. I can't touch it. Jesus is your trailblazer. Don't let the devil deceive you that you cannot enter the presence of God. Because he entered with the blood. That veil has been torn. It cannot be sewn back together. Why? Because he was torn from the top to the bottom. No one can show you back. You have not been barred from the presence of God. You might be feeling like, oh, I've sinned. I have fallen. You have not been barred from the presence of God. Step in again. It's been five years. Step in again. It's been ten years. Step in again. It's been twenty. Step in again. Because God lays beyond the veil. Because Jesus has blazed his veil for you. His destiny now becomes your destiny. He enjoyed the very presence of God. So you can enjoy the very presence of God. There's a song that is playing in the background. It says, you made the way. Want you rise on your feet? I begin to sing that song. You made the way. Thanks for listening. If you found this sermon helpful, we hope you join us in the mission of renewing Lagos with the gospel by sharing it, rating this podcast, and following us. These actions help us reach more people with the gospel. You can also connect with us on various social media platforms via the handle at City Church Lagos. City Church. Love Jesus. Love people. Love Lagos.